Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I've always thought that my job as a film reviewer is mostly to encourage audiences to look a little closer at what they're being shown, to see what's going on below the surface of films and question the media that we consume a little more deeply. Critical thinking is one of the things that will save us in these troubled times. When I look for someone to help me look a little deeper, I often turn to Mark Cousins, one of the great film historians. His 15-hour The Story of Film and Odyssey is essential viewing for anyone who wants to learn about global motion picture culture. His latest epic is a 14-hour collaboration with Tilda Swinton, a road movie through the history of women filmmakers called Women Make Film. I spoke to him from his lockdown in Edinburgh, Scotland. What follows is not about the director's lives. It's not a chronological history. It's not an analysis of how women directors are different from men. And it's not one of those lists of the best films ever made. No, it has cleaner lines than that. Our film is about the films, the scenes. It answers practical questions. What's an engaging way to start a film? How do you set its tone? How do you make it believable? First of all, welcome to At The Movies, which is the um, RNZ show, which is um, completely misnamed now that all the cinemas are closed. But um, we we march on regardless. Um, are you in, in lockdown at the moment, Mark? Yes, I'm in Edinburgh, Scotland, and we're in lockdown here. We've been so for about a week. Uh, it's affecting lots of people very, very badly. Obviously, not me so much because I work from home. And what, what are you doing to fill the time? I mean, you say you work from home, so presumably um, it isn't making very much difference to you. But do you, do you, do you find that um, being sort of confined to barracks, as it were, um, has inspired more projects or different projects? Yes, uh, I've never had a problem with concentration, Dan, you know, so I have a film to write at the moment and I'm writing it four or five hours a day and um, I've been doing Skypes with various film schools around the world. Lots of students, of course, are suddenly having to learn from home and I've been asked by various film schools to do talks and things and so my days are very full and in my spare time I've been decided to dive into films of the 1940s and particularly 1940 so I'm seeing lots of new films from that year that I've never seen. Why did you choose 1940? I chose, I don't know, I decided to choose a number 40 to, to be my sort of lockdown number. I think it's to do with that biblical thing of 40 days and 40 nights, and I figured we might be in lockdown for, for that amount of time. So I chose that number, and then I did a kind of 
visual talk online called 40 Days to Make Film, uh, to Learn Film. And then I just chose that year almost by chance. And uh, there are lots of famous films made in that year, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, The Philadelphia Story. So I'm avoiding all of those. And I'm looking at Indian films from 1940 and Russian films from 1940, Argentina, etc. Well, I've got, two, I've got so many questions about that. First of all, why, why would you want to avoid, um, avoid the, the, the films that are, everybody acknowledges as, as classics? And, um, and, and then we'll come to how, did you find, how do you find the more obscure stuff anyway? Um, well, I never rewatch films, or hardly ever rewatch films. You know, uh, once you've seen Vertigo or Citizen Kane or your favourite films, I have those pleasures, and I've got a good visual memory, so I will not watch them again. That means that I'm constantly discovering new films because I don't sit and and watch the classics again and again. So it gives me more time to discover other things, and I feel most alive and most alert as a film lover when I'm seeing new films. And to answer your second question, as you know, YouTube uh, is a bit of a kind of global cinematheque now. You know, so many films are on YouTube. And so I see a lot of stuff there. The Russian films from 1940, for example, not only are they on YouTube, but they're there with good English subtitles. So it's a proper resource. It has been for some years a sort of Aladdin's cave for movie lovers, even more so during the quarantine. But there's something a little bit illicit about it, isn't it? Because, it, you know, the, the films tend to find their way to YouTube through um, various sort of uh, unofficial means. Yes, well, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to have grown up in the 1970s when getting anything, your favourite song or seeing your favourite film, was all, it always involved some detective work. It always felt a bit illicit. It always felt like a sort of underground passion that you couldn't fully admit to. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I think that movie lovers, there is something sort of secretive about us or slightly freakish in the, in some way, and we should embrace that. I work a lot with, you know, the great actor Tilda Swinton, and we talk about being aliens because we love the movies so much, and we should embrace our inner alien. I think. I'd love. To, I'm going to come to talk Tilda a little bit later on, if you if you don't mind. But I, I'm interested sure. in, um, uh, in 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 so much of your work. There's there's um, there's an acknowledgement that what we as sort of I guess mainstream film critics, me. Um, and my colleagues are often patronisingly referred to as world cinema, but you don't see a distinction, do you? Like everything seems to have the same weight to you. Yes, I think that's that's a good point, Dan. I think you know there is there's, there's I don't believe that there's our cinema and then their cinema. There's no us and them. I think this is in the time when lots of politicians in America and Hungary and India, for example, are trying to put up borders and say we, our nation, is better or different from other nations. One of the empowering things about cinema is that it's a global language. You know, everybody in the world who could see a, a screen in the 1920s knew who Charlie Chaplin was. Cinema at its best has always leapt over national boundaries. And therefore, when I watch an Indian film from 1950s, it is not foreign to me. It is mine 
because it's speaking my language, the language of the movies. What was your introduction to cinema um, in the first place? Where, what, was the, what was the flickering sort of set of images that made you fall in love? <laughs> well, it, I grew up in Belfast in Ireland, uh, and so I, did, I came from a very ordinary working-class family, so we didn't see art cinema or world cinema. But I remember the first film I saw on the big screen was a, a Disney film called Herbie Rides Again about a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> I think we've and all been there. Of course, it's, 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 it's not a very good film, but what I remember is the size of the screen and the luminosity of the screen. I felt I was sitting in winter looking at summer. It was like a beach or something. It was The screen was vast and bright and intoxicating, and I wanted to live on the big screen. And so it, was, it wasn't the particular film that I fell in love with. It was the experience of movie going and that sense that it was bigger than life, that it took you on a magic carpet ride. And, and so in the sense of taking you also to somewhere but away from somewhere as well, what was your, what was your childhood like? Yes, that's true. I mean, as you know, in the in that period, we had the Troubles, the low-temperature war in Northern Ireland, and and my mother was a Catholic and my father was a Protestant, so it wasn't entirely safe environment, you know, and I think there was a certain degree of an anxiety there. Um, but you're right, going to the movies took me away from that anxiety. I remember sitting in the cinema and feeling the sort of my my stomach unwind, you know, that sense of release and breathing deep, more deeply. Uh, so cinema was a safe place. It was a harbour, you know, when the lights went down, all those, that dark room and those velvet seats, etc., all felt very safe. And therefore, when you feel safe, then your imagination feels free to go places you know when you feel at risk and danger you're clenched and you're closed but you know to encounter art to encounter visual ideas etc you want to be as open as possible so when did you work out that there might be a living in this might be a quid in it <laughs> that's implying that i make a living and <laughs> <laughs> um, yes yeah well i knew that you know from my background it didn't occur to me that i could make films you know and hollywood felt like a planet away you know films were something that were done to us from afar but i wanted to get as close as possible to the movies um, and you know that idea of the pilot fish the little fish that swims beside the big shark I wanted to be the pilot fish uh, that um, swam beside the big shark of cinema but um, so I decided to study movie history no I didn't make any films but then as soon as I left university I had an idea for some films I wrote the idea on a napkin in a cafe sent the napkin to a UK TV station and they commissioned the napkin so suddenly <laughs> I was directing. <laughs> so you 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 you, you wanted you started out wanting to be a filmmaker, not a critic. Yes, I've never thought of myself as a critic, and for from my from the, from the age of twenty two to the age of thirty, what I did was direct 
um, uh, documentaries, quite serious subjects, the Gulf War, etc. And then I went on British TV and started talking about films, and that's where people became a bit more aware of me. Even then, I didn't, I never reviewed films, but I talked about, you know, movie history and stuff. And so people had the impression that I talked about films before I made them, but I actually made them first, and then went back to making them thereafter. That's the, it's kind of the reverse of that of that that Calle du Cinema crowd. Yes, indeed. Now, the, the, probably the, the, the I guess the film or the series of films that you're most well known for is the story of film and Odyssey, yes. which is um, the most extraordinary introduction to um, the world of cinema that uh, I think anybody has come up with. Even even um, Martin Scorsese's um, introductions to film <laughs> are not as certainly not as comprehensive uh, and as uh, as deep. As, as that one is. That was 15 Hours. Your new film, Women in Film, uh, the road movie, uh, is only 14 hours. So is this women getting the thin end of the wedge again? <laughs> no, not at all. There are loads of women directors in, in the story of film. I think about more than 20. But I just, over the years, I had been, every time I travelled anywhere in the world, I'd been just saying, who are your great female directors? And I'd built such a long list and I'd been watching the films and I felt that there was so much stuff, that what so many great films directed by women who, that weren't being seen. This was years ago, long before Weinstein or Me Too, etc. But it, I felt as if you know, there was a pressure cooker in my head and it was building and building with with knowledge and love for these great directors and inspired by many of the feminist activists and female um, film historians that I knew. We thought, why don't we try and make a film that shows some of the great work, a uh, sort of tasting menu uh, of the great directors. And I'm talking about filmmakers from Australia in the 1920s and Bulgaria in the 1950s and and. Iran in the 1970s, you know, not the be not the really well-known ones, you know, and um, and we tried to get we tried to get funding for women make film from TV stations or institutes, but none of them would touch it because it was full of unknown names, filmmakers we hadn't heard of, like Binka Zelyaskova or Malvina Ursianu, for example. So we made it entirely without any funding on our own for years and years. There's been a spirited debate amongst my uh, Facebook friends today about, because uh, I, I, I let people know that I was going to be talking to you and see if I could get some suggestions for questions, etc. Uh, and, and, and there was a bit of a debate there about, you know, is there such a thing as uh, a, woman, a, a, a film that women want to make? You know, like, do they have, um, is there a female point of view that is distinct from a male point of view, for example? And they, they were kind of asking me because I've seen um, quite a few episodes of the series now. And it seems to me that your kind of manifesto is, is, to, is, to, is to say the exact opposite, is that there, there is no <laughs> single point of view. Yeah, well, people who haven't seen many films directed by women think that there's a certain type of film that women make. You know, and well-meaning people on the left think that because women are more empathic or something, then maybe women have made great films about children or relationships, etc. But the more you watch, and you, if you watch thousands of these films, you realize women have made every kind of film, war movies, uh, action films, as wave, across the spectrum, exper 
experimental films. And so I'm very, very reluctant to accept any of these generalizations. And to generalize about that is to generalize about gender and identity, and that imprisons people, you know. I, as a man, do not want to be told that I have to behave in a certain way or evince some qualities of masculinity. And I think women don't otherwise, likewise, don't want to be told that there's certain types of themes that they can make, etc. During the, this process, a lot of people said to me, Catherine Bigelow makes films like a man. And I I'm constantly outraged by that. Catherine Bigelow makes films like Catherine Bigelow. And she owns those themes, those narratives, those style, that propulsion as much as any male filmmaker. So we cannot, we cannot imprison filmmakers by making such stereotyped judgments. And the filmmakers themselves are the last people who want to be imprisoned. And they're, 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 they're always the ones that say, you know, don't put me in a box. Absolutely. You know, I know I'm lucky enough to know lots of the great female filmmakers and they just say, treat me as a filmmaker. You know, do me the do me the service of looking at my work. And then women make film, as you can see, that's what we do. We look at their work and talk about them as filmmakers. Let's go back to the world cinema thing for a moment. In, in all of your research, uh, around this Women Make Film project and, and prior to that, were some cinematic regions or continents more open to women filmmakers than others? Yes, I think if a culture was really macho, then it was less likely to have female filmmakers. So, for example, Italy and Spain have relatively few filmmakers given female filmmakers given that they achieved a lot in cinema also i have to say that the more commercial the film industry was the more capitalist the country was like america for example the fewer women got to make films if the if the film industry was very very commercial then money ran it and the money guys because they were usually guys pushed the women out as we know in very early american cinema there were lots of women but then they were pushed out by wall street so machismo and capitalism together uh, are they are the things that have prevented women directing in film history another question uh, that occurred to me um, watching the series was um, not only I mean, kind of inspired by how few of these women that I knew, and I was thinking about um, that how influential or otherwise many of these films um, have or haven't been. Because if they're so difficult to see, how can a filmmaker then influence the next generation? And how um, because there, there are some quite extraordinary visions that you present to us. But um, they they seem to sort of start and stop where they where they land, if you know what I mean. Yes, there's truth in that. Uh, the the question of how, who these filmmakers influenced depends on where you're sitting. So, for example, if we take Bulgaria and the great filmmaker Binka Zelyazkova, she was massively influential in Bulgaria and slightly outside Bulgaria in the region of the Soviet sphere. So when we're talking about you in New Zealand or me here in Scotland, we did not see her work, but people closer to home did. Her films were very, very popular, big at box office, etc. Similarly, if you go to 
Scandinavia, a filmmaker like Edith Karlmar. You know, she made the most popular comedy uh, of, of her time and, and made very popular films. And so, again, she was influential in the Nordic countries. But, yes, you're right, on a global scale, there are few female filmmakers that have really influenced the whole world, of course, Jane Campion being one of them. And um, uh, But it's never too late. That's, I guess that's my point. If these women have been sequestered or pushed to one side by film history, uh, it's never too late to see their work, to restore their work, to have it on Blu-ray, and for us as movie lovers to get them into the conversation. So it's better late than never that they become influential. One thing that I've found in showing women make film around the world is young female filmmakers at the end of it are often in tears are saying, I did not know I was part of a tradition. And there, and there, we have a feeling that um, f female filmmaking is a stop-start business. You get to make a few films and that's it. But actually there's a big tradition. There are thousands of female filmmakers. And if we know that and if the culture knows that, I think young women are more likely to want to be part of that tradition. They're not alone, not exposed, not so solitary. Uh, if you feel that you are part of something that's been going on a long time. Let's talk about Tilda now. Tilda Swinton, your collaborator on this project. Um, there's, there's something lovely about the narration for this film because it's it's not not only is it her but she's also got your cadences as well so there's she's got that wonderful actor's ability to um to uh to find find your character in in the narration as well as her own <laughs> well i guess it's my words obviously you know and i write in a certain rhythm and matilda is really um, she's one of the great artists in contemporary cinema, as you know, and um, I think I wanted to work with uh, voiceover artists who who have got real credibility and who do not buy into the gender stereotypes. Tilda Swinton, famously androgynous, and Kerry Fox, of course, also from Wellington, is one of the voiceover artists in this film and one of the great actors. And so I think you know, working with a voiceover artist, whether it's Tilda, whether it's Jane Fonda or the great Sharmila Tagore from India or Kerry Fox, for example, it's great to see artists at the top of their game, people reading a script, uh, which, you know, they haven't rehearsed when you go into a studio and just see them give it feeling. Uh, it's, a, it's a very humbling experience for me because I cannot do that. I just, it's not one of my skills. So what a treat to work with these artists. This isn't the first um, collaboration with Tilda Swinton for you, though, is it? Um, where, did you, where did you first no. um, sort of um, meet up with her? Well, I had admired Tilda Swinton from afar for years, you know, since the days of the Derek Jarman films. And she, like I do, lives in Scotland. And so we met at some film event and we started talking about collaborating. And then she rented an old bingo hall. We turned it into a cinema, but a very funky and unusual cinema, uh, trying to challenge the idea of what a cinema is. And then we did, we, that was the first of a series of collaborations. We did a big event in China, where we turned a building into a forest, and then we pulled a mobile cinema across Scotland. Uh, it was a 37-ton truck, and we, the audience, pulled it from the west coast of Scotland to the east coast of Scotland. 
and each of our collaborations are funky, unusual, but fun and quite childlike too. You know, they feel closer to play and they're not work. And uh, we've always, you know, we, I mean, we love the big cinemas, but sometimes, you know, going to this movie in a multiplex feels a wee bit soulless. And we wanted to kind of re-enchant the movie-going process by our collaborations. You bring you bring up um, a bit of a sore point at the moment. This this idea of uh, of cinemas and and going out and 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 sitting in a in a in a darkened room with the flickering screen. Um, it's not actually happening pretty much anywhere in the world at the moment because of the uh, this bloody virus, right? So um, can you? What do you see as the is the future for for cinema? Do you? Th- I mean, this is an almost an impossible question, but do you think that it's so deeply embedded in our in our culture and our psyche that we'll just we, we will have to go back to it? Yes, the flame of cinema will not die. Many countries in Iran, for example, you can't go to see a wide range of films on the big screen, so you watch at home. Uh, in Morocco, it had almost no cinemas until recently. Similarly, in China, it was really underscreened. But these populations didn't fall out of love with cinema, and nor we, will we. I always think of what happens in in the religion of Islam. You go you you go to your Friday mosque, your big experience, lots of people together. That's like going to the movies. But you also have your prayer mat, and you say your solitary prayers. You worship in your own home or whatever. And at the moment, because of the lockdown, we are going through a prayer mat um, period in our love of movies. In that we're worshiping at home, we're watching films at home. But when the lockdown's over we can go back to the Friday mosque and you're right there is something deep in us that wants the big experience the collective experience as human beings we need to get out and join with other people and have something that is bigger than ourselves we love this lovely phrase of Joseph Campbell we love the rapture of self-loss we always will it's hardwired in us so when it come Christmas or whatever, when we can go out again and go back to the, the movies, we will love it. Fantastic. I can't wait for that. Just before I let you go and get on with the, uh, the rest of your day, um, tell me a little bit more about 40 Days to Learn Film because that is, that's available free on YouTube, isn't it? Because I know the reason that's I bring right. it up is because we're talking about uh, women on um, women make film uh, which is is going to be available here in New Zealand on a subscription service, so not everybody's going to be able yes. to see it straight away. So um, if people yes. want to get a really good sort of taste of what you do, is, is 40 Days to Learn Film a way in? Yes, uh, 40 Days to Learn Film is something that I did last week. Uh, I, I was noticing that lots of film schools were hungry for digital content, something to inspire their students. So I sat here in my workroom and spoke into a microphone for two hours about cinema and uh, then added visuals about 250, 260 images, just about cinema, about the love of cinema, about the international nature of the movies. And yeah, we put that online for free just for a bit of fun to hope maybe inspire people a little bit. And yeah, it seems to have (laughs) gone a bit viral. Oh, that's excellent. It's been translated into quite a few languages, I think. Yes, it has already. Yeah, within 24 hours it was being translated. And it's strange, it was totally unscripted. 
totally improvised, you know, and I just was trying to contribute something. I'm not a doctor or a nurse or I don't stack shelves in a supermarket. And I thought, what can I do to contribute a little bit to this collective crisis that we're undergoing? And I thought, maybe I can talk about movies. If people are hungry for movies, I maybe can provide them with a bit of nourishment. And it seems to have gone far and wide. We're back in Poland again. A smile broken by a run. But even across the road isn't safe. So they're back here, and a slight pan right. But then, a German soldier. And pans left, and left. Still no cut. Then hustled, hassled, deported. And then, the dreaded dissolve to the dreaded place. Auschwitz. Astonishingly, writer-director Wanda Jakubowska had been a prisoner in Auschwitz. Now, just one year after it was liberated, she's back there as a movie maker, shooting this film, The Last Stage. It's a masterpiece. Women Make Film, a new road movie through cinema, screens weekly on Rialto Channel from the 1st of April, with encore screenings of every episode through April and May. It's rated 16+. plus. Mark's improvised introduction to film study, 40 Days to Learn Film, is free on YouTube and we have embedded it on the webpage for this program at rnz.co.nz forward slash at the movies. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.